And just in an attitude of prayer. If God has done something in your heart and life, and maybe he has just been faithful as God. He's been true to you. Maybe this week you spoke to him and, and you knew he was present. Maybe you had a verse that spoke to your heart or a friend who sent you a note. Or in some way God just showed up through creation as you looked. But his love has endured. It may be that in your heart there's someone who needs that love right now in their life to intervene and penetrate and to move so deeply within them that they know that they're not alone. Would you pray for them? In your heart, would you just praise God for what he's doing in your life? Whatever God is leading to do, would you just take this moment, this is your moment to just come present before God. What's in your heart, just give it to him. We're here to worship you. You hear these prayers, God. Prayers of praise. Some who are petitioning and interceding. And we know that we serve a God who when we call out to Him, He answers. Because He is faithful forever. Touch us again with Your love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was at Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, given only really just a few weeks before he was assassinated. In that address, Lincoln said, Neither party expected a war, north or south. The magnitude or the duration which it had attained. Each looked for an easier triumph. Both read from the same Bible. Both prayed to the same God. And each invoked his aid against the other. And at that point in his address, the reelected president's voice began to break and emotion began to pour through. And he spoke of how strange it was with emotion. He said that any man should dare ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. Later that same year, in December 18, 1865, the Constitution made the convictions of the Emancipation of Proclamation official. And with the adoption of the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution, slavery was legally abolished. And it was on that date slaves all across America were officially, legally set free. Though dead, Lincoln still spoke. At last, his dream was realized. The word swept across Capitol Hill and down into the valleys of Virginia, along the back roads of the Carolinas, and even deeper into the plantations of Georgia and Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Headlines on the newspapers, almost virtually every state, the headlines of the newspaper trumpeted the same message, just three words. Slavery, legally, Abolished. And yet something happened that many people didn't count on. The vast majority of slaves in the South who were legally freed continued to live on as slaves, right in the same condition that they had prior to that announcement and proclamation. 
Though free, African Americans virtually lived unchanged lives throughout that whole Reconstruction period. Because slavery had gone beyond a master's lip, uh, whip or the boundaries of a plantation field. It had actually been something that had been woven into now the internal structure of their hearts. And there weren't the mechanisms to walk into freedom. As one Alabama slave had, had said, when he was asked what he thought of the great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln, whose proclamation had gone into effect, he said, I don't know nothing about Abraham Lincoln except they say he set us free. And I don't know nothing about that neither. They had been set free. One had come and set them free. And yet they didn't live within the freedom that had been legally been accomplished on their behalf. Well, when we come to this passage of Scripture in Galatians chapter 5, we have a similar predicament as Paul in his, what I call, emancipation proclamation, which is Galatians, because he actually, in Romans, writes in much more detail about this. But in Galatians, in response to what was happening in that place, he says right in verse 1, it's transition verse from the teaching to now his call to the people. He said, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. The whole purpose of his coming and the Father's work that he had set in motion, beginning from when Adam and Eve fell and sinned and were separated from him, and that he had done by choosing a person, Abraham, and then bringing together a nation, and then moving this kingdom through David and Solomon and developing all this so that through it would come a Savior, one who would redeem, who would buy back, who would make people free through the cross, through the work of God alone. It was all so that you and I can experience the freedom of knowing what it means to be forgiven today, right now, this moment. Can know the freedom of what it means to be celebrated by a God who is madly in love with who you are, the way He created you, with the gifts He's put inside of you. This God proclaimed it through Jesus Christ. And, and then He gave this message. Jesus before he left this physical realm, in fact, moments before he ascended into heaven, he turned to those who were his freedom fighters, those who were going to go and proclaim this message. And he said to them, wait, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses of this great, gracious love and freedom that has now been won for you. You will proclaim this freedom in the streets of Jerusalem, through the countrysides of Judea, down the back alley of Samaria. Deep penetrating into the reaches of the ends of the earth will this message of freedom go. And then, as this began to develop and the headlines spread, at a church in a place called Antioch, north of Jerusalem, there was a group of people meeting and they were hungering and fasting and saying, God, we so want to express your love and let all people know about this incredible freedom of what it means to be forgiven and to know that this God who has loved us has a desire to be in relationship with us and wants to walk through with us through the day and wants to empower us and, and give us the ability to become like Him. This God we are hungering for 
spoke to this church and to this church in Antioch. He said, I want you to set aside two guys named Barnabas and Saul. Bring them forward. Set them apart. And I want you to send them off with this message of freedom to an area called Galatia. And I want you to go there. And as you go, I want you to proclaim to everybody, I will, with signs and wonders, let people know that I am with you in a part of what's going on. And they went. And they came to Galatia. And they began to tell these people about the fact that they didn't have to, through their religious ceremonies and rules, try and earn God's favor and try and in, in some way prove to God that they're good enough for Him to be loved. And they couldn't believe that God would love them. This God would be so personal and so loving that He would intervene and actually step down into history in a man named Jesus. And then in Jesus, He would live this perfect life. And He said this perfect life was lived so that He would then give a sacrifice so that the consequences of our own sin we wouldn't have to bear so that we could have relationship with Him now and forever and be righteous in His sight because of Him. <laughs> yeah, amen. That's what Paul was proclaiming. And these people were enjoying and celebrating and living in it. And they were taking their stand upon it. And Paul set sail and left one day with them enjoying and celebrating. The party was on. They were enjoying God. They were telling people about God. They were seeing God do miracles. Their faith was beginning to allow God to work through them in ways that God showed up. And people were seeing in that area until one day. Some false teachers came in who followed the steps of Paul all the way. And after Paul had set the course and had, had, had in the, in, by the Holy Spirit made this pathway where this message was being told, these people came behind them and they said, you know what, Paul really isn't an apostle and he really doesn't have the gospel truly right because there's just a few things you yet need to do. In fact, really one thing, truly it would be important if you're going to show that you that you that you're spiritual, that you're going to show that you, that you really love God, that's going to show that by this very act, people will see and know that you are loved by God. All you need to do is what Abraham had done with his son and Moses did with the people of Israel and that we have done forever. Jesus is good. Jesus did a good thing on the cross. He really loved you. But you need to do one more thing. One more thing. You just need to be circumcised. And Paul, when he gets news of this, writes this emancipation proclamation, this letter called Galatians, and starts out by saying in chapters 1 and 2, you guys, remember, I really truly am an apostle set aside. Jesus actually called me. Not only am I an apostle, I actually am telling you the real gospel. This is the essential of the gospel. What I told you when I was there, it's still true. And then he takes chapters 3 and 4, and he goes and he proves to them through historical method, through a scriptural method, through a theological message. And then he gets down to chapter 4. The very last point is he makes one last effort to get them to understand what the gospel is really about. And he uses this rabbinical approach, this allegorical method. And then he comes to chapter 5, verse 1, this transition. And now he turns from what God has done by proving it through all these things. And he says, here's what you need to do. Yeah, there is something you need to do, but it's not that you need to cut yourself to prove that you're spiritual. You need to do this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not allow yourselves to once again take on this yoke which burdens you as a slave. We're responsible not to get freedom, but to maintain it. 
to stay in it. And what's interesting about how we are to maintain our freedom is that it is not through some improvement of our attitude or some kind of behavior or some kind of service we're called to do, but it's really three things, he says, that you're to believe rightly, you're to rest confidently, and he says, then listen carefully. Because it's all a battle in your mind. It's about truth. It's about what you will actually put your trust in. Will you believe what is true and right? Will you actually rest in confidence that what has been said is true? And then when you walk through life, will you make sure that you listen carefully so that the voices you're listening to won't confuse you, but there'll be voices that align with what God has said that you're resting confidently in? And only listen to those voices. Because here's the reality. As Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, the truth I have told you, that's what he said, if you hold to my teaching, the truth I have told you, then the truth will set you free. It will keep you free. God in Jesus Christ has set you free. He did it. And now our responsibility, your responsibility, my responsibility is to remain in it, to stand firm in it, to not let anyone bully you, burden you, let anyone come along and somehow say that if you just do this, if you, if you just... Um, act in this manner, in this way, and, and, and you'll show that you're spiritual and you'll, in a sense, show that God loves you. Look at verse 2. Paul begins and he says, Mark my words, I, Paul. The word is testify. It's as if Paul, who is a lawyer, is standing up before a court and he's saying, I want to emphasize so strongly right now, and I'm going to stand up actually like if I'm in court and testify before you, that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value. None whatsoever. You might as well give up the whole Christ thing and you might as well quit going to church, at least to a church that proclaims Christ. And he can't stress this enough. Verse two, he says, mark my words. It's like when Jesus will say truly, truly, or in the King James, he says, verily, verily. Some of you have King James. In the New International Version, he says, I tell you the truth. I often think that's a funny line because it's not as if Jesus ever lies. Right? But when he says, I tell you the truth, it's like a, a teacher who stands in front of you and says, now I want you to pay attention. If, you, if you're here for anything, here's, here's one thing I want you to catch. What I want you to do is italicize, embolden, underline, underscore, mark this down. Here is something you need to know. You are not responsible to get God to love you by what you do. You cannot earn his favor. You can only believe rightly in what he's done and live in it. In fact, that's the way Jesus taught so often. Jesus seldom taught, should you do this, should you do that. He would often just look at things and he said, you know, look at the birds. If you are like this, you'll enjoy. You have a choice. You can live in this reality or that reality. It's what you choose to trust, to use your mind. And so in a sense of saying, think, I want you to believe what is really true. Because if you stay in the teaching, the truth will set you free. Always set you free. Paul makes it so clear. He says this freedom that comes from living forgiven and within the gracious abounding love of God is your responsibility. You can't pass this one off on someone else. You can't pass it on the church. You can't pass it off on, 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 on parents or you can't leave it some other place. He says, verse one, stand firm. Don't allow yourselves. He says, verse two, again, I declare to everyone who allows or lets themselves. Verse three, if you are trying in your strength to be justified and verse four, you can actually fall away. You might actually slip, slide away by the way you start getting confused in the way you're thinking. 
And all these sentences appeal to our responsibility to believe what is we know to be true. I have to tell you, this is an area God has been really working on in my life. As I deal with my own responses and reactions of, of how I have grown up and the things that become natural to me, the, the, the patterns of sin that I have chosen, and the strategies of my own life where I seek to, through my own reactions, to get life and to get strength. And God has been teaching me, it doesn't matter if someone tries to shame you or not, or tries to enslave you or not, or tries to do that. It matters in once as not if they are. What matters is that you're responsible to live free. So I just want to make that really clear. You may be in a setting, in an environment where there's things coming at you, and, and at a certain point you have to decide whether you stay in that, because it's not healthy to remain in something that continually attacks your spirit. But you also need to know it is your responsibility. You can't blame it on the environment. You can't blame it on someone else. You need to take responsibility for what you think and what you believe and then how you act that out. And so with this in mind, Paul elaborates on a particular situation that's occurring in Galatia. So that in verse chapter 5, verse 2, he says that if you let yourselves be circumcised, so again, if you let this group come in and you allow them, now you're responsible. If you allow them to do it, Christ won't be of any value to you. Don't think in any way that you'll gain any advantage in God's eyes by getting marked on your flesh as if you're more spiritual as a result of doing that. Because when you choose to walk this road, which is through your own effort and your own strength to gain God's approval and His love and His His um, desire for you, as if He could desire you more, you are going in your own strength, in your own way, and it is the opposite of the way that God, through Jesus, has provided, which is merely one that says, I know that I can't do it in my own strength. I realize I'm broken. I am like Abraham and Sarah, who were past the years of childbearing. Have no hope of having a kid. But God intervened. You may be at that place today. You may have never understood that through all your own efforts that somehow you were seeking to get God into your life or somehow getting God to approve of you. And I want to share with you the incredible promise of God is that all He asks for is a person to recognize it and humbly then receive it. You actually have to, with your will, ask Him to to intervene. To come into your heart, to receive and accept what's been done for you through Jesus. He will always do it. Not maybe in your timing. So verse 3 says, I again declare to you, every man who lets himself be circumcised, if you allow yourself to be marked and somehow hope by doing this, you're becoming more spiritual in the eyes of others and God, then you need to understand what you've signed up for. You have put yourself in an obligation, a contract, that not just will you follow this one law, but every law has to be followed. Every one of them. If that's how you want to come into the presence of God and know His approval and gain His acceptance, it's not going to just be one. It's all. If you add one law, then you have to follow every law. Take, for example, if you were today on your way to church and you wanted to get here on time and you're coming along and you see the light and it turns and you know how that is, it's turning orange, right? 
And, and as you're coming along, you decide you're going to kind of go through it. And, and you see behind you as you're coming down the road, these lights flashing. And you go, oh, no. You've done that? And the policeman stops you, and he comes up to the car. He asks for your identification. As he does so, you, you look at him, and you go, officer, I know this doesn't look good, but let me just tell you, today I haven't stolen anything. He's thinking, I wasn't going to look in the trunk. And as he's kind of got this weird look on his face, you say, an officer, I haven't cheated anyone today. An officer, there hasn't really been much greed in my heart. In fact, none that I know of today. And you go on and he looks at you and he's kind of amazed. What does this matter? You broke this law. That's the one that counts. That is one that makes you a lawbreaker. It's the same way. If you choose to go this way and you say, I'm going to follow and I'm going to get this mark, he says, and you need every other one to be perfect in your life. That's the standard. You're obligated to everyone. And his point is really simple. If you believe that a relationship with God is through your effort, then know that the standard is perfection. You must live exactly like Jesus lived on this life. That's what you signed up for. And here's where this approach leads. 5, verse 4. You who are fast, who are trying to be justified by the law, have been alienated, or the word literally is severed. I like that even better than alienated. You've been severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. He's kind of giving two of the same ideas. He's basically saying this. Cut yourself with a knife, and you've cut yourself off from Christ. That's kind of the poetry. That cut, yourself off, cut yourself with a knife, you cut yourself off from Christ. Stand on your efforts to keep the law and you will fall from grace. I don't believe he's talking necessarily here about salvation. He's talking about what happens so often in our own lives that we come to Christ, we recognize our need, we recognize that only he can save us, and then as we live this life, we think somehow through our efforts we can do what needs to be done to make ourselves acceptable and better in the eyes of God, and it doesn't happen that way. So a simple point is, do you want to know God's unconditional love every day? Do you want to enjoy the freedom of living under his smile? Then your responsibility is to cement this truth into your mind. If you've got to write it on your dashboard and your mirror and on your office panel and where you go, that you are trusting in God and his love for you. And that is what makes you accepted and approved in his eyes. The question ultimately is what you believe to be true. And if you believe you can do one thing, just one thing, think about it, just one thing more, to make yourself more acceptable to God, then it reveals, says Paul, that somehow Jesus wasn't enough. It's as if when Jesus is on the cross and he is dying for your sake, he mouths these words and he says, it is finished. And then... A number of days later, he ascends into heaven. As he ascends into heaven, it says that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. The idea of sitting down is resting. The work is over. If in some way you think that in order to enjoy God's love, you must do something to measure up or prove you're worthy, then Jesus should have said when he died on the cross, it is almost finished. And when he got to heaven, he should not have sat down because the work wasn't done. He should nervously be pacing around the throne room of heaven, looking at each and every one of you, hoping that you'll do the one thing to gain God's acceptance and love. 
But he didn't. God loves you. He did the work on the cross, and he has forgiven you. Now as we respond, that's what he goes on to say, we now rest confidently in this truth. We don't just believe it one time, but we believe it one time for a long time. We rest confidently in what he's done. That's what he says in verse 5. But by faith, by we trust, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. You see, it's all about God again. Our responsibility is trust that the work of the Spirit will provide the righteousness that He has promised for us at the end. Personally, I believe a better translation, really, of the Greek is because the emphasis, I believe, is here on Paul's words. It's following what he said in, in chapter 4, which is this work of the Spirit. The better translation is through the Spirit by faith. We rest confidently in what will be ours someday. I have to tell you, it is discouraging at times when you look at your own life and you see how often you fail and fall. And, and as you seek to walk with God and listen to His Spirit and, and follow His Word and as you walk in obedience, and obedience is really so that we experience the love of God. It's not to get Him to love us. It's as we hear the Spirit of God and we obey, we allow the Spirit of God to do things within us and through us for our lives and for others. But if you're like me, it's really easy. It's really easy to start walking down this path and then become discouraged because you kind of go, man, I can't believe, I can't believe these, the, the, the strongholds of my past and the choices that I set in place that have formed some of my character. It just seems that when I get into these situations, I become fearful and I react in ways that I would not like to. It just seems when I'm in certain situations and environments and what's going on in my heart, I experience this shame and this guilt and then I react in ways that I don't want. And I, it's so easy to begin to be so nervous rather than rest confidently in what God has promised He would do for you. You see, the whole work of sanctification, it's not about, and, and so often what happens is just like in the church in Galatia, I believe is pandemic in the church of America today. It is that we come to this experience as we're seeking through our own efforts and people come to, to this desire to follow God, they understand that they've blown it and they, they know they need forgiveness or they, they come to a realization that in their strength they can't please God and they come to the place of brokenness, which was what the law was meant to do was to break you so that you came to this place and said, I can never be like Jesus. And then as you cry out for mercy, God says, guess what? I never intended for you. In fact, I brought my son so that you could have grace and mercy. I love you in the brokenness, in your humility, in this place where you are now totally dependent on me, that is the place that now I can begin to work and transform the character of your heart. And we come to Him and it's so fresh, it's so real, and we start walking in that way. And then soon after, because of our nature, because of the world around us, because of who we are as people and the pride in our own flesh, we start going this direction again. And we don't even know it. And that's what Galatians it's all about here. Are these people, they're confused and, and they're starting to walk this way and they turn. Which leads Paul to verse 6. For the changes of our character and the things that we do within us are because of the hope we have. And we recognize that we don't become changed people. That the character within us doesn't change necessarily at all by our righteous actions. Now, there are things we can do that form us and help us become in our heart more like Christ. But it's not the righteous things we do 
that bring about the interchange. He's basically saying as you rest confidently in His love and you celebrate it and you let it work and soak into the very essence of your being, His love will transform you from the inside out. That's what Jesus said when He spoke to the Pharisees. It's not about cleaning the outside with external things that you do. One more little mark on your body isn't going to make you a more loving person. In fact, often when you get Sunday school attendance pins, it actually does two things. It makes your, your, you know, your shirt sag and it can puff up your head. Well, let's face it. The Pharisees had gone that route and Jesus said it didn't do a thing to make them more loving. That's why when he gets to verse 6, he says, for in Christ Jesus, I want you guys to know it really doesn't matter to me whether you mark your flesh or not. It's not about the external stuff. It's not that even Paul is against circumcision so much as he's against what it leads to if it's done for the motivation to get God to love you and for you to look spiritual. That's why he says, and here's one you underline again, it matches up with what it says in 1 Corinthians 13. It matches up with Romans 12.1 in the view of God's mercy. It matches up with all the great words of God, the great commandment to love God with all your heart, and the great second commandment to love others. The only thing that counts is faith, resting confidently, believing rightly for a long time that this righteousness is all about God and what He is doing in you and through you in your character. And as He begins to transform your heart and He through your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit begins to lead you. And as you submit yourself to Him and to His Word and to make yourself accountable to the body of Christ in those settings, as you do those kind of things and you walk in that humility of brokenness, God can change your life. But it won't occur immediately. Because the only thing that counts is faith, trust in this, as it is expressing love. Paul is basically saying, here's what counts, folks, faith in God's love. It is faith in God touching you with his love, forgiving you, giving you mercy, showing you kindness, bringing you into the fold that changes your heart. And when your heart is touched by this God, when you recognize that you deserve something far worse, when you recognize that mercy has come and grace has given you far better than what you ever deserved, you can't help begin to start saying, God, do that in me. Make me like you. Because you begin to realize that when someone has forgiven you so greatly, and you're so touched by that, and someone offends you, and you want to get angry, and the Holy Spirit kind of comes and says, yeah, remember what I did for you? And you don't do it to get God to love you. You do it because you've experienced His love. In fact, when someone is in a very difficult time, a time of crisis, and, and you maybe yourself at one point in your life, maybe you had lost your job and you had found that you didn't have the resources you needed and you didn't go and tell a lot of people, but some people watched your life. They knew you enough that they came around you and they began to give to you and they began to share things with you. And you were so touched by their generosity. You were so touched by the comfort they brought around you that when you were in that position, you now, as you see someone else, you can't help because of the love which has transformed your heart to want to love someone. And to comfort them. Maybe you lost a child. Maybe you had someone who was ill. And you know what that's like. That's what changes your heart. Not this religious stuff. Not the cutting of the flesh. Not these spiritual kind of things that we do to make people think we're more spiritual. That God doesn't care for. God is so desiring for, for me. And for you. To experience deeply within yourself 
how loved you are. He is madly in love with you. I used to look in the mirror and I would say that and I'd feel foolish. And I still feel foolish at times saying that. But do it sometime. God is madly in love with you. A madness that was so great that He would leave His throne in heaven. He'd come down and He'd let us spit on Him and He'd let us put Him to death in order that you might know and live in His, His arms of love. But not just so you can do that, but so that you can do what it says here through this faith and this trust of what He's done for you that you might go around and express it to every person you have the ability to do so. So that the people that are around you at work, the people that you, that you happen to go um, on daily routines by, whether it's at a store or a gas station, whatever it is, there's this love that God has in you. Instead of being so caught up in the things of our own life, we are now caught up in some ways, at least at some points from time to time, we're caught up in a sense with His love and we share that love. We intentionally think of ways to pray for people. We intentionally think of ways to serve people. We intentionally think of ways as a church to be a, a blessing to others. And so then the third responsibility, not only do we believe rightly and we just rest confidently, but the third responsibility is what we listen to. He says, listen carefully. If you look at verses five, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, they really center on who you will listen to. Who you will let influence you. Verse 7. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Paul loves athletic imagery. He has this image of this guy who's running down a race in, in those times. And here is a lane marked out for him. And he's running. And someone is in the other lane. And they cut them off. And they knock them into the other lane. The idea is that Paul is saying that when I left you, when I set sail and I left, I was so excited about what God was doing. We were such good friends. We were on such good terms. And I left. You were actually running hard down this lane of grace. And then I get word that someone cut in, knocked you into the lane of law, of rule keeping. That kind of persuasion, verse 8, does not come from the one who calls you. I would not, nor would Jesus who called you ever persuade you, ever cause you to think that you have to move from the lane of grace to the lane of law. In fact, verse 9, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. It's amazing how just a little bit, just letting a little bit of the influence of the law get into your life will begin to not only confuse you, but begin to confuse a whole lot of other people. Churches go down the drain because people do not take responsibility and say, you know, that's wrong. I'm sorry. I won't listen to that. I mean, God may be speaking to you about that, and I'm thrilled for you and follow the Lord and His conscience and the Word of God. But in my heart, with regard to this matter, this is what God is saying, and I'm going to walk in it. So that in verse 10, he says, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty. Guess what, folks? There are consequences for the things we do. There are eternal consequences. You want to choose through your own effort to try and follow God and get Him to please you, you will throughout your whole life. If this is the path you choose, the Word of God says it leads to death, not only now, but forever, eternally, and it's called hell. And you don't have to go there. Because God has made a way for you that it isn't by your effort, it's by what His effort has done, and all you need to do is receive it. So Paul says, I'm, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Because in that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. You see, what's getting me into trouble isn't 
circumcision. It's about grace. Everyone can't, you know, doesn't necessarily like grace. Because always when you preach grace, people say, oh, wait, how are we going to keep people on line and to follow God? What are we going to do? They're going to just run their own way and do their own thing. And you go, if they do, they don't know the word of God. They don't know the spirit of God. It does not negate grace. And then this last verse, verse 12, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Paul is now angry. Paul concludes by saying this, as for these ones you are listening to who have agitated, they stole your peace, the confidence that you have that you're no longer condemned, that you are now at peace with God. These agitators, I wish when they were doing this circumcision thing with the knife, they would just let it slip. It is kind of funny. (laughs) Paul is so upset with these lying voices that have gotten his friends off track. Paul almost died, was actually stoned when he was on his way to bring this gospel to him. He almost lost, I think, his eyes and was ill with them when he was there with them. And he says, think about it, use your head. If those guys you are listening to are so religious and spiritual, why do they just make a little incision and just circumcise? If they're so religious and spiritual, why don't they go the whole way and castrate themselves is what he's saying. I know that sounds harsh, but that's the word of God. And it has real precedence because in that context, in that city of Galatia, in that area, there were priests, they were eunuchs who did just that out of service to God. They wanted so badly to please God, so badly for him to accept and to approve of them that they would actually do that in their religious fervor for God. And he's saying, don't let these guys fool you. If they want a little mark, then why don't they do it like the pagans? If that's how you come to a relationship with God and walk with him. They're better. And Paul is just making the point one last time. We need people who will take responsibility and courageously live in God's grace and not allow themselves to be bullied by people who come along and say, you know, if you just do this one thing and if you just do what I believe here. No. As you follow God with your Holy Spirit. You know, one thing i got to say this again. You know, in Galatia, they had the Old Testament. They didn't really have the New Testament. It is amazing to me when I look at the Word of God and I see it in the New Testament being formed, how often they appeal to them to listen to the Spirit of God. Now, I'm not saying you do it without the Word of God. We've been given the Word. We need to follow the Word of God. But we're on the other end sometimes where we don't tell people, listen to the Spirit of God in your heart. And as you listen to the Word of God with the people of God, God will cause you to walk in His ways. So I don't I one of my deep desires as a pastor is to outfit every person here with the responsibility that you have the ability to hear God's word. You have the ability through the Holy Spirit to read his word. You have the ability to be in relationship with God. You have the spirit of God to empower you through the spirit by faith as you eagerly await the righteousness of God to live out in love your life for God. Don't let anyone think you don't. I wanted to conclude this service, and I've asked Mark to come and share what God placed on his heart when he was preparing for this series. And I've asked Mark and Brett if they would come and just share this song again, because this is the heart of God. Every once in a while, he goes, what happened? We were on the right track. We were walking together. You were broken and humble, and, and, and you were experiencing my love. And then, then, as Paul says, I set sail, and what's up? I would do anything and did do everything that you might walk in my love.